Across all civilizations and societies, death is a commonality we are all familiar with in one way or another. For thousands of years, people have been practicing various burial and funerary practices to honor their loved ones who have passed on. While every culture has their own unique traditions, when you look a little closer, you might find that there are actually a lot of similarities running throughout each civilization. In addition to burial practices, we'll also touch upon some of the missteps and wrongdoings anthropologists have made while excavating Native American burial sites. Today, we'll be focusing specifically on the burial practices of colonial America and ancient Egyptians. Let's dig in. <laughs> You're proud of that one. I am. <laughs> I thought um, you were going to be like, for thousands of years, people have been dying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of. But, um, so hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Anthrophiles. I'm Sarah. I'm Emily. I'm Katrina. And today we're talking about burial practices. So I chose this episode because right now I am in an archaeology class with Professor Giblin, and for the class we had to do a cross-cultural analysis on three different civilizations. The civilizations we had to do it on were the Inca, the Maya, and the Mississippians. And then we had to find one topic that related to all three of them, and then see how that topic differed and like compared amongst all three. So the topic that I chose was burial practices. And the more research I did into it, the more interested I became in it. So I thought that it would translate well into a podcast episode. That's why we're here today. (laughs) So the two that I wanted to focus on, the two civilizations were, not civilizations, like cultures and stuff like that, are colonial America, because I've always found that really interesting, and then also ancient Egypt, because I feel like everyone finds that interesting. And I feel like, did you guys also have like an ancient Egyptian phase as a child. I feel like yes. everyone kind of goes through that. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Where, like, you're just obsessed with mummies and pyramids and hieroglyphics. Of course. So I thought, like, everyone would find that kind of cool. So do you want to get started? I'm ready. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, colonial America, late 1600s, early 1700s, on the brink of revolution. Very exciting times. Oh, yeah. So... Colonial American burial practices were very plain and simple. To start out with the basics, people were buried in simple wooden boxes, not very elaborate coffins, and cemeteries were usually located on common community grounds. So you didn't really have like your own plot of land, it was usually an area where everybody buried their families together. And a lot of the times, if you notice, if you walk around in cemeteries, like I do sometimes, <laughs> you'll see that a lot of them are on, on like hilly areas because um, they needed land to farm and you're not going to farm on a hill. So that's where a lot of colonial cemeteries actually end up. And they use very simple gravestones with just the name and the date of birth and the death of the person written on the headstone. And there are a lot of colonial cemeteries in New England and we live in New England. And I was just wondering if you guys have ever like walked around one before slash what did you see when you did? I have walked around one with you. Yeah. Um, we were filming our senior project, mm-hmm. and um, there were a lot of, like, the, I don't know what they're called, like the skull and crossbones mm-hmm. in the urn and willows. I geeked out in the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went to a summer camp um, <laughs> that taught children about history because <laughs> I, was, I was really popular in high school, <laughs> um, or I worked at it in high school. I didn't go there in high school. But we, what we do, we would take children to colonial cemeteries during the day, and we would walk around them, and then we would, like, teach them about the gravestones and stuff like that. And I remember learning about, like, there are, like, different phases of colonial cemeteries. So, like, what was it? There was, like, the angel mm-hmm. face would be earlier, and then the skull and crossbones was later. I think the skull and crossbones was first, oh. and then the angel, and then the urn and willow. Sorry. It's okay. But I also remember you saying 
Emily a cool fact about the graves and the Oh, yeah. yeah. That sometimes after the wooden box had decomposed, there'd be, like, a sink in the ground, and you could actually see where the coffin, like, was. So that's kind of spooky. So if you ever go to a cemetery and the ground is sunken, that's where the body is. Um, <laughs> anyway... Katrina, you ever walked around a colonial cemetery? No, I haven't, but I did some transcribing of headstones for one of my professors. Um, That was hard, for one, because a lot of them are deteriorating Mm -hmm. and eroding. But it was super interesting um, learning all the names and writing down the dates and trying to see, like, who was connected to who. Yeah, it is really interesting. Because then also, like, the plots are kind of buried together, so you can see, like, families and stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway, so aside from, like, the actual graveyards and the burial stones, a big part of burial practices in colonial America was your funeral attire. So it was common for wealthy families of the deceased to wear these things called mourning rings, and people that would wear them would be the friends or the family of the deceased, as well as the minister. And they were just these little rings that you would wear on your finger, and they would be passed down throughout a family, so, like, every family had, like, a set, and then you would pass them from your children to their children and so on, and you would wear them when a loved one died. And here's a description of the rings. They're kind of creepy sounding. Usually they were gold and black with a skeleton or death's head. And then there would be engravings on them. And do you want to know what they said? What? It said, be prepared to follow me. That's ominous. Isn't that kind of scary? mysterious. I know. Um, And then sometimes they would put a lock of the deceased person's hair inside the ring, which I think is also cool. Because this is, like, not colonial times, but in, like, Victorian times, they would do crafts with people's hair. Have you ever seen those before? I think you've told me about them. They're so weird. Like, not to say weird so much on an anthropology podcast, because I feel like that's not... You know, but they would like after a person passed away, they would collect hair from like their hairbrush or they would chop off some of their hair and it would kind of almost look like a doily, but made out of hair. And then they would hang it up on the wall Mm. to like remember the person. And then also um, Victorian death photos. Have you seen those? Yes. I feel like I have. Yeah. They're yeah. So like because, you know, like cameras weren't so common then. So not everyone had a photograph. And then since people died at an earlier age, sometimes you pass away before you got your picture taken. So what they would do is they would like dress you up and then they would like pose your dead body for the picture so they could have a photo of you. But like if you look at them, it's just like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. Very strange looking. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess it makes sense to like, no, it does. You don't have a picture of your family member. Mm -hmm. It's sad if you think about it. Yeah. Anyway, so wealthy families would wear these rings, but they would also wear these things called funeral gloves. And the reason that they wore the gloves after a person died is because they thought that if your hands were bare, that the person's spirit might like enter into your body. So the gloves were supposed to protect you from that happening. And the gloves were usually black, white, or purple, and they were also given to the friends and family of the deceased person and the minister. And there's one account of a Boston minister who had up to 2,940 pairs of mourning gloves. So, wow, it's a lot. I was just wondering, because we were going through like how people would dress and stuff like that, can you think of any mourning practices today that are kind of similar to what they did back then? I mean, I feel like at a funeral today, it's customary to like just wear black Mm -hmm. you know you don't really feel like it's a taboo to dress in like bright colors to a funeral that would be perceived as very odd yeah it would i feel like we dress our loved ones like their best or like in their favorite Mm -hmm. outfit so i feel like that's pretty similar yeah so then also 
when somebody passed away in your family, you'd have to enter a mourning period, and typically those periods lasted for about two years. And women during the mourning period had much stricter like dress codes than men did. So what they would have to do is they'd wear a black dress, bonnet, and veil, and you would wear that for the whole first year after the person passed away. And your dresses would have to be very simple, like not crazy or elegant or flashy. Then after the first year passed, you could wear slightly fancier dresses, but they would still have to be in black. And then in the final month of mourning, you could wear gray, purple, and lilac to spice things up a little bit. But I thought that was interesting because the women had like the stricter mourning dress code than the men did. Any comments on that? I do think it's interesting how, you know, for women, a lot of things aren't in our favor throughout history. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just interesting how like society dictated like when you should mourn and like kind of said like you're not allowed to move on yet like people need Mm -hmm. to publicly see that you're still in mourning so it almost seems like an act that you had to follow rather than like a like a genuine thing definitely it was more of a cultural thing than it was actually like you processing your grief which is kind of interesting to think about yeah like what if you didn't need two years to grieve Mm -hmm. like everybody's grieving process is different and there's no shame in grieving for a short time or a long time so that's interesting that they had to be constantly reminded of it but on the other hand if you're grieving I guess like in today's society people don't necessarily know because there's nothing that would kind of say that unless like you post on social media or I always feel weird when people post on social media like I don't know like I I don't know how you'd go about doing that does that make any sense yeah Mm -hmm. it was actually really hard for me to post anything on social media because my dad passed away a year ago so it was it was weird. I didn't really want to post anything, but I think a lot of people do because they want people to know. Yeah. And it's it's like that catch 22 like I want people to know and like mm-hmm. it's not like I want people to feel bad for me. I just, you know, want no, to yeah. share the news cuz it is it is news. Mm-hmm. Um and then in, on the other hand it's like slightly awkward like how do you tell people it is no it's a weird way of going about it because you don't know how to like because it's easy to bring someone like happy news that you want to tell them Mm -hmm. but it's so much harder to like send a text message or a call like that but I guess also because people process their grief in different ways so like posting on social media might be a way that somebody does that and that's valid but yeah I guess on the one hand the morning clothes then did like kind of help express that news and stuff like that so that's a question yeah and i don't know if you know the answer but i'm gonna ask anyway for the morning clothes was that across all like economic statuses or was that for more like the high class people who could afford to like buy these like new like black outfits i actually am not positive about that but i feel like for the most part I don't know if it, if maybe the rules were less, less strict for, like, women of lower socioeconomic classes because, like, they had to get to, like, work and stuff like that. So maybe they weren't allotted as much time to grieve. That might be a guess of mine, but definitely don't know the definites of it. But, but it's interesting today because um, even, like, with, like, Prince Philip who passed away recently because, like, the queen had to enter, I think, two weeks of mourning. I think I remember reading that. And I think they, like, scaled back how long it actually used to be, but there are still some traditions, I guess, that are upheld that are reminiscent of what they were like in the past. So next topic. 
in a lot of the cemeteries. So I don't know. So I couldn't find much research on this, but I remember learning it when I went on a cemetery tour with my local historical society. (laughs) And they said that when enslaved people passed away, they would be buried in like the town cemetery a lot of the times, but they would not be given like a normal traditional headstone. Instead, it would be this thing called a pillow stone grave, where it was just a rock on top of where they were buried. So I always, when I, not that I go often, but every once in a while when I go to an older cemetery, and like if you see kind of like a cluster of rocks buried together, kind of like set apart from the rest of the cemetery, there's a really good chance that that's where all the enslaved people are buried, which is, I thought was very interesting and sad because normally you'd walk past it and just think it was a bunch of rocks, but really it's like people are actually buried there. Were they like carved into or just plain rocks? So I did some more research and it did say that like, on some of the rocks it could be carved into or like sometimes they would just use like a stick or something like that to mark where the grave was so I guess it depended on like the town and stuff like that but I just thought it was an interesting point to bring up to like you know obviously showcase that there were deep inequalities at the time and we actually saw those when we went to the cemetery that we filmed in Mm mm-hmm and they were actually buried near Connecticut's first black governor. Yeah. Which was really cool to mm-hmm. see because um, it's a piece of, like, Connecticut history that, like, I hadn't heard about before. Yeah. But it was because you pointed it out to me and you said, like, oh, these are actually graves. And, like, I would have had no idea. Yeah. It's very interesting. So, anyway, moving on from, like, I guess the clothing and the burial practices because then you would all obviously go through like a ceremony to kind of like honor the person that passed away so today we have wakes when someone passes away but do you know where the word wake come from comes from so (laughs) back then it was not uncommon for people to be buried alive (laughs) um because they thought that someone would be dead but they were really just in a really deep sleep really sick but still alive so they would you know think that they passed away and they would bury them. So the word wake literally means to wake the person up. So wakes, you know, today are kind of like solemn and quiet. You know, you pass through, you pay your respects, say hi to the family. But then they were really loud and boisterous occasions because they wanted to wake up the dead person. So people would be chatting loudly, like drinking, eating, almost kind of like party-ish because they really wanted to make sure that the person wasn't dead. And it worked sometimes. Like sometimes people did wake up during the wake. So what you would do is the body would be presented in the person's home and then you would walk through and and pay your respects and then you'd go outside and then that's where kind of like the party would be and then you'd be as loud as possible to try and wake the person up. But sometimes the wakes didn't always work and they would still bury the person when they had passed away. So they actually had some devices inside the coffins. So the person, if they woke up buried alive, they could signal that they were under there. And I actually found a couple of patents for these like coffin alarms. Now the patents actually come from the 19th century, which is past colonial times, but they were so interesting that I was like, well, we got to talk about them. But before we do, do you guys have any ideas for like a coffin alarm? Because they were different types. So like any guesses on how they might work or function? I don't know if it's, real i don't remember where i saw this or like why i know this but for some reason i'm thinking of like they would dig a hole in the ground to the coffin and tie a string to the person's wrist and it was attached to a bell on the surface so if like they woke up they could ring the bell yeah i was gonna say bell yeah so bell was definitely part of it i found patents for two specific coffins so one of them had a ladder attached to the coffin so there was kind of like a tube and then a ladder so you would put the coffin in the ground and then you would fill the grave but there would be that tube sticking up with the ladder so if the person woke up they could climb up out of the ladder and then out back into the world but obviously if 
somebody mistook you for dead, you probably weren't, you know, in the best physical shape at the moment. So they also had a little pulley system set up where there was a string and a bell attached to it so you could pull on it and signal that you were still under there and someone would go help you. Another type of coffin was one where there was kind of a gear attached to it and then there was a handle underneath the lid of the coffin. So if you woke up, you could turn the handle and then that would disturb the ground above you. And it would disturb the ground for two reasons. One, to let airflow into the coffin. And then two, to like disturb the ground. So like it would be moving. So somebody would see that and come help you. Also on that same coffin is there would be a tube above the person's face and the tube would go all the way up to ground level so somebody visiting the grave could like stand over it and look to see if the person was awake or not, which is kind of crazy. That is a bit spooky. I know. But then once like a certain amount of time had passed, like that part could be removed and then they could be fully buried. I would hope so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that's pretty much all I have for colonial America. But I just think it's, you know, back then death was very common for all ages. Um, It was a thing that a lot of people were very familiar with. Oh, yeah, actually, one more thing. So a lot of the colonists were Puritans. Um, You know, Puritans like to have a really good time. (laughs) Um, So they wanted to make sure that their religious services were nothing like the flamboyant and flashy Catholics of the day. So a lot of the times colonial funeral services would be silent. There would be no songs, no eulogies, no speeches, and they would just kind of like stand there quiet. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting too, because that's pretty different from what we have today where people, you know, go up, give a speech, that kind of thing. But yeah, as I said before, death was common back then, so it wasn't something people were unfamiliar with. And oh my gosh, I keep forgetting. One more thing. This is, I found this kind of amusing. So funerals um, were kind of like an opportunity for people to gather and celebrate because you didn't have a lot of chances like that in colonial America because, you know, you were working all the time. So colonial funerals actually accumulated quite a bar tab. They would serve a lot of alcohol at these things. And I actually found a tab from a liquor store in Connecticut during a colonial funeral. It was for the funeral of David Porter, and he lived in Hartford, and he died in 1678 from drowning. And they ordered for his funeral a pint of liquor for those who dived for him, so the people that tried to save him while he was drowning, and that cost one shilling. A quart of liquor for those who brought him in, so the people that brought him in from the water, and that cost two shillings. Two quarts of wine and one gallon of cider to jury of inquests. I'm not really sure what that means, but it did cost five shillings. Eight gallons and three quarts of wine for the funeral, which cost 1.15 shillings, and a barrel of cider for the funeral, which cost 16 shillings. So they really were having a good time at these funerals. (laughs) Do you know about how much that would be like now? I don't know. What they weren't spending on the coffins is what they were spending on alcohol. Yeah, they were like, oh, we want the simple coffin because we're Puritans. It's like, no, you want the simple coffin so you can spend the rest of the money (laughs) on booze. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's it for colonial America. Great. Great. So now we can move on to ancient Egypt. So I feel like everyone kind of already has some like preconceived ideas or like they know stuff already about ancient Egypt, specifically burial practices, because everyone knows what mummies are and stuff like that. Do you guys have any information that you know before Um, we start? Very, very limited knowledge. But Because I feel like when you think of, like, Egypt, you think of, like, mummification. Mm -hmm. But was that actually, like, the practice? Oh, yeah. Was it, like, strictly, like, mummification? 100%. Yes. Katrina? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I know quite a lot about um, what people found 
um, when they went and dug the mummies up. So I guess we can get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> so um, before I get into like the burial practices of ancient Egypt, it's important to like understand their religion because their religion dictates a lot of what goes on with the burial practices. So Egyptians believed in the afterlife. But their version of the afterlife was definitely a lot different than what a lot of people think of when they think of the afterlife today. So, scholar Margaret Brunson says that in Egypt, the concept of eternity was the common destination of each man, woman, and child in Egypt. So, eternity is kind of like their version of heaven, and it's your goal to get there in the afterlife. But eternity wasn't really like some big place in the sky with clouds and like golden gates. It was just an everlasting version of Egypt, so it was kind of a continuation of your life on Earth, but like a more idealized version of it. So like what you have now, but better. The afterlife was known as the Field of Reeds, so that's what it was called, and it was your goal to get there. And when you would go to the Field of Reeds, you would inherit your body and your earthly goods as well. So we all know that people were mummified in Egypt. But do we know why they were mummified? What was the reasoning behind it? I do not know. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, so the reason they were mummified is because they believed in order to actually get to the afterlife, your physical form needed to still be intact and preserved, or else you wouldn't make it there. So that's why they did so much mummification in Egypt, or else you wouldn't get to your version of eternity. The earliest Egyptian mummy to ever be discovered was found in, I'm going to try my really hardest to pronounce this, Ghibelline, Egypt, and they named the mummy Ginger, and the body was dated all the way back to 3400 BCE, and the tomb was found with both the body and grave goods. And it was believed that the practice of mummification actually came around because obviously Egypt's the desert, and they noticed how the bodies preserved so well in the arid atmosphere of the desert, so they started like doing it intentionally. So in order for a human to enter the afterlife, their body needed to be properly preserved. And the way you could enter the afterlife was your soul needed to enter the afterlife. And there were nine parts of the soul in Egyptian religion. So I'm going to go through the nine parts. You ready? Ready. There was the cot, which was the physical body. So that's what needed to be preserved after you passed away. The ka, which was one's double form. The ba, which was a human with a bird's head that could travel between the earth and the heaven, so that's how you got either to eternity or back to earth. The shuyet, which was a shadow version of yourself. The ak, which was the immortal and transformed version of yourself. The sahu and sechem, which were other aspects of the ak. That's all I could find on those two. The ab, which was the heart, and it was believed that the heart was the source of good and evil. And then Ren, which was one's secret name. So the Kat, your physical body, needed to exist and be preserved. So the Ka, your double form, and the Ba, the human-bird hybrid, could travel to the heavens and be recognized up there. And similarly to funeral practices today, when a person passed away, they would be embalmed, but you could kind of get like the different packages of embalming and like different levels of quality and the prices varied based on the quality that you got so I was just wondering if you found it interesting that today that's still kind of a thing where like you can get like the bigger more flashy funeral or wake service um, for more money and then you can get a smaller more laid-back one for less any thoughts on how that's a similarity today and back then I mean yeah definitely based on like what coffin that you decide to buy or casket you decide to buy or like what venue or like you know what plot in the cemetery mm -hmm. 
dying is so expensive. Yeah. And it really shouldn't be. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah. The, the funeral practice is a big moneymaker. Yeah. It's kind of crazy how um, capitalism has found a way to profit off of death. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a little upsetting, too. A bit. So I'm going to walk through the three different options that they had for when you passed away and how you could be embalmed. So the first option was the best one, and it was the most expensive, and it was supposed to represent Osiris, which was the god of afterlife, death, and resurrection, among other things. The second option was the middle ground, not the best, not the worst, but the price was pretty, like, stable. And then the third option was the cheapest, most basic option, and then that's usually the option that commoners would get. Do you want to go more in depth about the types of mummification? Yes. Yes. Okay, so... Which mummification choice you picked to determine the type of coffin you were buried in, your funerary rites, and the treatment of your body. Process number one, the best kind of mummification. So before we start getting in depth on that, all mummification processes used a thing called natron, which was a divine salt to preserve the body. And natron was made with sodium bicarbonate, sodium sulfate, and sodium chloride. And then this was actually found naturally in the Egyptian desert, but it was a little expensive. So then you could also use like regular salt for more economic purposes. When mummifying a person during the most expensive part of the burial, your body would be laid out on a table and your brain would be removed. Do you guys know how the brain's removed? I feel like some people have this weird bit of knowledge. I feel like I remember learning that it was a hook through the nose. Yeah, because since they thought all of your like good and bad laid in the heart, that they kind of thought that the brain was like actually like useless to humans. So they would go in with a hook and they would kind of like scramble it to like get a hold on it and then pull it out of the nose and then they would dispose of it. So your brain would be taken out first and then next the contents of your belly would be removed. So they would take all the organs out and then they would wash out the inside of that cavity with palm wine and a mixture of spices. And then the stomach would be filled with myrrh, cassia, and other fragrant substances. And then your stomach would be sewn up again. So after your insides and brain were removed, then you would sit inside a tub of the natron for 70 days exactly so your body could be fully preserved. And once the 70 days were over, you're removed from the salt and your body is washed from head to toe, then wrapped in linen strips. So like the linen strips are like how we picture like a mummy today that's what the linen strips were and they would be held together with this gum-like substance that was kind of like the glue that they used to keep it all together and after the person was wrapped up they would be given back to the family in a small coffin-like wooden case shaped like a human figure so like when we think of the sarcophagus with you know the person laying with their Mm -hmm. arms crossed that's their version of the coffin yeah so I thought that was interesting because I feel like we all like know what mummies are but we don't really know what the process is behind it And it's very, like, in-depth, and every step we're going to get into it later has, like, a purpose to it. So they definitely, like, there's a lot of thought going into everything with it. I didn't know it took so long. Yeah. Like, 70 days. I know. Isn't that crazy? I feel like that would never happen here today because, you know, capitalism, they want you in and they want you out. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. But actually, um... We're going to talk a little bit later about how archaeology has kind of disrespected a lot of grave sites in the past um, and dug up the burial sites of Native Americans, Egyptians, among other cultures. But in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, when people were doing a lot of like recreational archaeology, they would like dig up these mummies in Egypt and they would bring them back to Europe and America. And then they would have these things called mummy unwrapping parties where a rich family would get a mummy and then they would invite all their friends over and then they would unwrap the mummy and then they would crush up the bones, and then they would snort them. 
I don't even know what to say. I know. Yeah. Isn't that insane? That's horrible. Yeah, but it's just so, like, dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. It's like you are unwrapping a real human being. Yeah. And you don't even care. Yeah. And then I think, too, if I remember correctly, a lot of the times when they wrap the person in the linen, jewels would kind of be, like, set inside of them. So, like, at the parties, it would be like, oh, like, do you unwrap it? Do you get, like the gem inside and stuff like that and then also i don't know if you guys have been to a lot of like egyptian museums or anything like that but a lot of the times when you go and they have mummies on display it's an unwrapped mummy and that's because in like the early 1900s late 1800s people were unwrapping them like crazy Mm -hmm. so it's actually really rare to find a mummy today that's all fully wrapped up so i feel like the whole displaying of like a mummified person is also a whole different topic of like maybe this shouldn't be happening Mm -hmm. because in my episode that we'll get to we're talking about an american mummy um like someone who wasn't meant to be mummified but ended up being and Mm -hmm. was put on display and eventually they buried him but even still today like there's still egyptian mummies that are on display so it's like why is there that that difference in respect it's interesting to think about and it's definitely an ethical dilemma that has not been solved right. or close to solved. So the second type of burial. So this was like the middle ground burial that you could get. Not the most expensive, not the least expensive. During this, less care would be given to the body. Intestines were not taken out of the body, but they did stay in the body and they did preserve the intestines because we're going to get to it later, but you needed the intestines. Cedar oil would be injected into the body. And then after the cedar oil was injected, the body would be left to rest in the natron and they would stay there for 70 days like before. When the 70 days were up, the oil would be drained from the body. So this combination of the oil draining from the body really quickly and resting in the natron for 70 days would cause the body to kind of like shrivel up like a raisin almost leaving only like the skin and then like the dried up intestines and the bones and the body would be returned to the family in the mummified state without any bandages third type of burial the cheapest one um the intestines were taken out and washed out and the body would sit in the natron for 70 days and then that was it So obviously the most basic one. The reason that organs were preserved in all three of these practices is because they believed that you needed organs in the afterlife because they believed that like your body was functioning in the afterlife the same way it was on earth. So you needed those organs to function. So in a lot of like Egyptian tombs that have been excavated, you'll see like the jars with the organs inside and that's what they were for. So the person could have them in the afterlife. The heart would always be left in the body though because it was believed that the heart contained the ob, which we talked about earlier, which was the source of good and evil. So it was really important to them to leave that one there. Now for the funerals and graves of the Egyptians, Um, Every Egyptian was given some type of ceremony, whether you were a pharaoh or a commoner. Um, Obviously different levels of ceremonies and stuff like that, but everyone was afforded some type of like celebration of their life. And the reason that they did this was because they believed if you were not properly buried, then your ghost would return to haunt the living. And ghosts were like a really serious threat back then. They believed that if they didn't bury their family member correctly, that they would be haunted for the rest of their life. So morticians in Egypt would advertise the best types of burials and they would be like, you know, like the best funeral possible to keep the soul happy and to keep your family ghost free, like that kind of thing. (laughs) But mummification and burial practices were expensive and, you know, even the cheapest option was pretty pricey for a lot of people. So poor families would often give morticians old clothing to wrap up their relatives in instead of like the fresh linens. And the more commoners with less money would be buried in simple graves along with the artifacts they enjoyed in their life if their family could afford to like give up those artifacts. But every person had a sarcophagus and 
On the sarcophagus was a line of hieroglyphics, and this line represented the backbone of the dead. And the hieroglyphics would help the person like rise up from their coffin so they could eat and drink. They also wrote instructions inside the sarcophagus, and these instructions would tell the person who they were when they were alive on earth, so they had an awareness of themselves. And then the instructions would also dictate how the person could enter the afterlife. And one of the most famous books with these instructions is the Book of the Dead, which I feel like some people have heard of about Egypt. But if you've heard of the Book of the Dead, that's what it is. It's how to enter the afterlife. Any comments or questions? Um, I think it's just like the whole funeral practice is just so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've never like taken like a closer look at it. So like all of like the intricate like steps and like details seem like really beautiful almost. Yeah. So the way someone's tomb looked was very dependent on how wealthy they were. But one thing that every tomb had in common was a thing called a Shakti doll. So in normal everyday life, Egyptians were called upon to do public work. So they would be called upon to build pyramids, temples, parks, things like that. And once a year, you could hire a replacement worker if you weren't feeling well, you wanted a day off or something like that, but you had to use it sparingly because it was a once a year type situation. And since the Egyptian afterlife was a continuation of life on earth, you were still expected to do work and be called upon to do public works. So these Shakti dolls acted as your replacement worker and one Shakti doll equaled one day of work replacement. So there was a whole industry for them and you could buy them and they were pretty expensive. So the richer you were, the more Shakti dolls that you had. and. Most of them were made of wood, but pharaohs usually had ones made of stone or metal. And I just thought that was interesting because I didn't know about that before. Hmm. So after the body, tomb, and sarcophagus were ready, they would hold a whole funeral procession for the person. During these processions, there were professional mourners called the Kites of Nephthys. And these would be women who would follow the procession, and they would be wailing and grieving like as loudly as they could. And the reason that they did that was because... They wanted to make sure that the whole family and everybody in the community could properly express their grief. So seeing other people like wailing really loudly coaxed other people to also like cry and express grief, stuff like that. Because um, in a lot of other religions, I feel like this is common too, that if people on earth forget who you are after you've passed on, you don't exist anymore. If you've seen Coco, you know what I'm talking about, that movie. That gets you. It does. Tearjerker. I know, right? <laughs> so you, so you um, need to make sure people remember who you are. And that's why they would have the professional mourners to help people remember. From 2613 BCE on, there was a thing called the opening of the mouth ceremony that was performed on mummies. And a priest would recite spells and use a blade and trace it along the person's mouth. And this would allow the body to breathe, eat, and drink in the afterlife. And once this ritual was performed, the body would be finally put in the tomb, and they would be ready to begin their afterlife. After the body was put in the tomb, the funeral goers would hold a feast outside, usually like right outside the tomb, actually. So while this whole feast was going on, it was then believed that the person was now entering their trip into the afterlife. So we're going to walk through the whole journey that the person went on. So there would be the directions inside the sarcophagus on how to get into the afterlife. The person would be guided by the god Anubis to the Hall of Truth, where it would be revealed whether or not the person would go to the Egyptian version of heaven or hell. This is a very dramatic way that they conducted this. What they would do is the person's heart, which was left in the body, would be weighed against the white feather of the goddess Mat. Because remember, the heart was the source of good and evil. Mm -hmm. So if your heart was heavier than the feather, 
you would fall through the floor and be eaten by a monster and cease to exist. And that was it. That's hardcore. I know, right? I kind of, though, because I feel like, you know, like today, at least in like the Christian religions, like the version of hell is like, you know, eternal flames and stuff like that. I feel like ceasing to exist is a better option. It seems like You know it. what I mean? I guess so. I don't know. Just me. <laughs> um, but if your heart was lighter than the feather, you would go to the field of reeds and you would live there for eternity. But the reason that um, these burial practices and the whole process of mummification was so important is because none of that getting to eternity, your heart being lighter than the feather, living like the rest of your life in an ideal place would be possible if your body and soul weren't properly preserved and intact. So that's why the whole mummification process was super duper important to Egyptians. And that's pretty much it on Egyptian burial practices. Yay! Yay! I mean, it was definitely really interesting, and it is kind of um, cool to see, like, the parallels between, like, maybe some like, colonial burial practices yeah. and, like, Egyptian mm-hmm. burial practices. Totally. So then, since we're just talking about burial practices, I really wanted to touch upon something that I know all three of us have learned about and the anthropology department here likes to talk about a lot no matter what class you're in and it's related to burial practices but I feel like most people are not aware of it. So in the field of archaeology and anthropology it's pretty well known that Native American and indigenous people have not been treated with like the respect that they have deserved. I know all three of us read that book Bone Rooms mm-hmm. in Forensic Anthropology that talked about how Native American graves were robbed, the bodies were brought to museums, grave goods were brought to museums um, when they should have been like resting in their proper burial place. And when archaeology first became popular in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you know, archaeologists would go to Native American grave sites and then they would just dig up any of the bones and artifacts that were laying there. And a lot of those bodies ended up in museums, like even museums that people, you know, I mean, you guys can jump in anytime because I know you know a lot about this because we all did the book report on it. But like museums and that people like love and know today, like the Smithsonian, just have like thousands of bodies, Native American bodies, in their basement just lying there, not being used for research, got there illegally, unethically, and it's kind of overwhelming to think about sometimes. Yeah, definitely a lot of the details that we read about in that book are very shocking, but at the same time not. Um, And I know they're working to return some of the remains Mm -hmm. to like their rightful place, but also because a lot of them got there illegally, they don't really know where they came from. Mm So now we have this like dilemma, like we don't know where they came from, but we shouldn't have them. Yeah. So it's like, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Because when they were first kind of digging them up, like it was almost like a recreational thing, which is horrible to think about that somebody would just go to a gravesite and for fun, dig up a bunch of bodies. And then a lot of the times they would use um, Native American bodies, like they would measure the skulls and then they would use it for like, um, like eugenic beliefs that like, since the skull was like smaller than a white person's skull, a white person was smarter than other people, which is obviously horrible and incredibly racist. Um, but a and lot of not the, true. And not, yes, and not <laughs> true at all. But a lot of, like, the museums that people attend today, um, that people, like, love and, you know, like, you bring your kids to and stuff, they have that really super-duper dark history that's upsetting to think about. But I just think it's important to know about it because... Yeah, I actually read, I think it might have been in Bone Rooms, that um, Thomas Jefferson actually had a burial mound in his backyard that he excavated. And I feel like that's not a fact that people know about Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was sleazy. Um, A little bit, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) a lot of it. (laughs) 
you know, and like maybe he didn't know what it was at first, but I think once he started hitting like grave goods and bones, mm-hmm. probably should have stopped. Definitely. Out of respect. But there wasn't a lot of respect going on. Yeah. Any thoughts, Katrina? Yeah, I was going to say um, in regards to um, the Smithsonian and things like that, I know in 1989 they passed, or Congress passed an act um, called the National Museum of the American Indian Act, and that required the Smithsonian to launch an institution-wide repatriation policy like regarding Native American human remains and other cultural materials. So that required them to inventory, identify, and then consider them for return if requested, Mm -hmm. which I think is an interesting stipulation because if, you know, indigenous groups don't know that their ancestors' remains or um, artifacts are being held in a museum or they have no way to identify that it is part of their group or tribe, then it's just going to stay in the museum yeah. when, you know, that's something that if they knew that it was theirs, they would probably want back. Exactly. So. I think Emily said it earlier, but like, there are just so many, there are like literally thousands that like, it's almost impossible to like, make sure they end up where they actually belong. Um, and actually a year after the act that you were talking about, Katrina, a year after that was passed, the U.S. government also enacted a thing called NAGPRA, which stands for the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And this, I got this from the NAGPRA website. It says that NAGPRA serves to help with the repatriation and disposition of certain Native American human remains, funerary objects, and sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. By enacting NAGPRA, Congress recognized that human remains of any ancestry must at all times be treated with dignity and respect. So that was um, like a good step in the right direction. Congress recognized that these were all stolen items from native land, but obviously, like, we're definitely still not 100% there with, I don't think you can ever really make up for it, but, like, for trying to, like, right this incredible wrong. And if you want to learn more about NAGPRA, the National Park Service website has a lot of information on it. I was looking at the website a couple days ago, and it was very informative, actually. And then even though it's fun to talk about all these burial practices and stuff like that, it's important to remember the darker side of archaeology that has allowed us to learn more about it, but there's also the very unethical side of it that I know a lot of anthropologists and archaeologists are working on trying to make better. But, you know, at the end of the day, (laughs) all these cultures had their burial practices, and even though each one was kind of different and not the same to the other, the whole purpose of burial practices is to, you know, honor someone that you loved and you cared about. And, like, that's kind of, like, nice to think about. Like, every culture has their way of trying to honor people that they loved. It's very, like, uniting. Yeah, it is. And And humans have been doing it for literally thousands of years. So, yeah, that's my episode on burial practices. I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoyed it. My sources for this episode were an article called The History of Funeral Practices by Sarah Lynn, Funeral Traditions in New England from the Fenouf Funeral Homes and Crematorium website, Strange Facts About Colonial Funerals from the New England Historical Society, and Ancient Egyptian Burial from Around the World from the World History Encyclopedia. And yeah, I think that's it. Thanks for tuning into the Anthrophiles. Our music is Find Your Way Beat by Nana Quavena from the YouTube Free Music Library. 
Our cover art is designed by Katrina using Canva. Thank you to Michael Bachman for editing and producing this episode. And thank you to the Quinnipiac Podcast Studio for making this podcast possible. Thank you to Professor Reedy for editing my script and overseeing this episode of The Anthrophiles. Tune in two weeks from now for our next episode with Katrina about museums. Thank you.